1: Welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, it's our take on guess what? The election coverage. It was the first BBC coverage not at TV Centre for 50 years. Paxman reunited with his former Newsnight chums on Channel 4. Sky sent out students to cover results on their smartphones. We'll discuss how they all fed. Plus, the UK press were beholden to polls that were largely wrong and featuring front pages almost all backing Cameron. Was this the most partisan? press ever did twitter the tv debates and the live updates add anything at all we'll also find the time to discuss a meltdown at al jazeera america worry over the proposals to expand five live sister station sports extra and we'll ask are the top gear team moving to itv this is the media podcast sponsored by audiobook Well, it is the morning after the night before and with me at the Hospital Club, where else would we rather be than uh, drowning uh, our sorrows or celebrating here around some media podcast microphones, uh, is Heat Magazine's TV editor Boyd Hilton, uh, Professor Liz Howell, Director of Broadcasting at City University London. And what election special edition would be complete, that'll be all the others, without journalist and producer Alex Hudson as well. What a star cast. Welcome all. Thanks. Yeah, Liz actually has a glass of red wine on the go as well. Hair of the dog. Hair of the dog. (laughs) Fantastic. Uh, Right, before we get into the details then, where did you all watch the coverage? How was your election night? How did it pan out? Uh,
2: Boyd, let's start with you since you are the TV critic amongst us. Uh, I I watched it at home on my 78-inch television. I just just stayed up all night. I got home in just in time for the start of the more for um, theatrical drama thing, The Vote. Oh yes, I forgot yeah, about that, was we'll di- mention that. Yeah, it was, that was great, it was downhill from there. Rude, rude question to us, but was there a lot of flicking going on, or just staying with
1: one... There was mainly,
2: I would have flicked less. I did do a lot of flicking, mainly because I knew I was doing the media podcast today, yes. and I thought <laughs> we had to discuss the different coverage that there was on television. So, to be honest, if I ha- if it hadn't been for this very media podcast and mm. this very discussion now, I probably would have stayed with the BBC. Stayed
1: I mean. with the BBC, yeah. Liz. But I did flick around.
2: Did it, what did you do? Get up to any flicking?
3: Well, I went to stow with friend in Twickenham who was uh, you know, terrified by what was going to happen to Vince Cable and uh, was really, really depressed this morning. So that's been an interesting experience. We flicked a lot, again, because I was doing this. I don't think I'd have stayed with the BBC. I'd have probably stayed with ITV. I found it almost impossible to make a comparison. I was going between them and getting lost and going back. And Really, they were incredibly samey and at the the same time very different it was a weird experience
1: okay and Alex yourself I imagine that you, since you have Google implanted into your eyeballs you were
4: looking <laughs> at the internet at the same time I was looking at the internet while at a party from 89 up and left up forward a political scrapbook who were all madly tapping away blogging as, as the election went out and they managed to make us turn from Sky to BBC very quickly it was a long evening and there was cabaret in the middle of it and I didn't quite understand what the cabaret it was meant to be some sort of election metaphor with medical hats. (laughs) I think that was lost on me but yeah it was an an interesting evening filled with a lot of shouting from Labour supporters.
1: Well let's see listeners if you can guess the four different age demographics represented on today's episode by Alex's answer (laughs) as the one watching cabaret whilst the election was on. Um, Before we actually analyse in depth uh, what we saw uh, here's a flavour of what each of the broadcasters were doing last night.
4: Welcome to the BBC's election centre. Welcome to Downing Street, to our virtual Downing Street. Up there above us is Andrew Neil, with a bird's eye view of the political
2: scene. Outside Broadcasting House in the centre of London, Sophie Rayworth is standing on a gigantic map. It is 5 to 10. In
1: just a few minutes time, the tightest election in living memory will draw to a close.
3: This board will chart the story of the election, changing color as we call the result. We've also
1: assembled some of the country's best analysts and commentators in our opinion room.
3: We're also joined by the giants of social media by Twitter and by Facebook. Till
1: the polls close at 10 o'clock, there are huge restrictions imposed by TV watchdog
4: Ofcom on what we can say in case we influence your vote. And unfortunately, this programme is entirely about the election. And and
1: it's on at exactly the time we can't talk about the election. (laughs) Organisationally, this is a disaster. It is ten o'clock, the polls have closed, the general election is over and our exit poll is predicting that the Conservatives are the largest party. Then amongst those clips you heard the BBC's coverage, of course, led by David Dimbleby, where most of the nation tuned in. The overnight suggested an average of 4.3 million tuning in, a peak of 7 million. Compare that to ITV, which averaged just shy of a million. Uh, Liz, does that surprise you, having watched the BBC, that they are the place where people go in these events. It doesn't
3: surprise me at all, it's absolutely bog standard that for national events the BBC is always the leader in the field um, that's quite a big lead, but if you even think about the relative news broadcasts um, the BBC News at 10 regularly averages twice as much as the ITV News at 10, so it's not as startling as you, you, you may think it's sort of disappointing in a way for ITV that to always be the follower in this respect but then the BBC is making itself more and more the nation's cultural broadcaster and that's where people go and they'd obviously put a load of money into it. I would say more money than ITV and Sky put together, frankly. Well, this
1: is the thing, isn't it, Boyd? I suppose it can feel a little bit like uh, Christmas Day, really. You know, ITV have to put in an effort yeah. and you know fund a, a damn good episode of Downton Abbey, but really they know they're going to lose.
2: I have to say, as soon as I tuned in, I mean, a BBC had this lavish multi-platform, four-storey set. <laughs> you know, four or five different groups of people all Covering the same thing in the outside bit at new broadcasting house with a huge map. ITV was in a little room, it looked like a hospital wing or something. Um Tom Bradby and a couple of other people looking a bit lonely and sad. Yeah. I I was astonished by how low rent ITV looked. And I thought I just thought the whole look of it was off putting. The BBC looked lavish and glamorous and exciting and thrilling, as it should be in election time. So sky kind of somewhere in the middle, fine. The most exciting thing about Sky was the coverage on Sky Arts, where you saw behind the scenes of its own Sky News thing, which I thought was a fantastic innovation. But I, as soon as I tuned into to the BBC, I thought, why would, you, why would you go anywhere else? Why would you even bother with ITV? Well, I, 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 I and and I don't you. think any of them were good enough or exciting enough to challenge the BBC.
3: I'll tell you why you wouldn't go to the BBC necessarily. Why? Because David Dimbleby and that ilk, it's... It's old school, it's it's what, Tom elderly Bradley blokes. Look, well, Tom Bradby's probably about thirty years younger for a start. And also you've got the wonderful Seems Juliet the same age. You've got the <laughs> wonderful Juliet Chingham. Mm. So, you know, I think you've got to be fair to ITV. It wasn't at all a bad attempt and they did a lot more, I think. Coming away from dull interviews and moving it on faster, and I like the opinion room. And they had more women.
1: Well, in fact, I just talk to you about that women point briefly because obviously it off, regularly comes up when you're here because it's you know one of your specialist areas of interest. I saw a lot of people uh, tweeting, especially uh, Vicky Frost, formerly of this parish, saying, "Where are all the women uh, as as guests on these shows?" Yeah, to an extent you can argue, well, they're not there because actually they've just gone for the most significant people in each of these fields, they Absolutely. happen not to be women. They but say, Ollie, there really were not very many women around.
3: This, this is one of the really irritating arguments that we don't have women because they're not as important. And then, of course, it's self-fulfilling, they're not as important because they're not used as often, and so it goes on. And anyway... Whether they're important or not, they are 51% of the population and particularly in politics should be represented. But the statistics show that in political stories, not just at election time but across the board, they, are, they feature 10 times more men than women in political stories in this country. That's not international politics where the Taliban obviously don't field many women. It's here in this country, 10 times as many men. It's, it's a disgrace.
4: You had one comedian on Channel 4 along with Jeremy Paxman making a lot of sex jokes, increasingly inappropriate, and just made them sound more and more like a dad trying to be cool to his kids. But no, I agree agree with you as far as the amount of... There were just no women around, except for Kirsty Walkin
2: Glasgow...
3: Sophie Raworth uh, oh, and Emily yeah. Maitlis. And Emily Maitlis and, Maitlis and Laura, Laura
1: yeah. Yeah. Well,
2: the BBC had four women yeah. at, cent- wow. at the centre of its presenting... Well, they had probably almost as many as there were men in its core presenting line-up. I agree. The big problem was the guests. I mean, you had Tessa Jow was kind of like the main woman on BBC coverage as a guest for a long period, and there were hardly any women. But in terms of the presenting line I thought the BBC was much better than ITV. Again, I mean, there were more. The BBC had a huge pool of great reporting talent to yeah. call upon, and I thought that showed right from the off. I just think ITV doesn't have as big a pool of presenting talent. You, they're, fine. they're absolutely fine, don't get me wrong. But honestly, there was a reason why seven million people watching BBC One at peak, and it's not just because people automatically turn well, there. They were just egg, better.
3: It? It's chicken and egg.
1: Alex, you, you mentioned Channel 4. We'll talk about those in just a second, but but let's just stick with the BBC briefly for your take on that, because you used to be the interactive producer on Question Time. How did you think the BBC did from that point of view, a kind of new media point of view, reacting to what was going on digitally?
4: New media, I think it was the way that the BBC will always react, which is in a very proper, very formal. It will get there as quickly as it can to be correct digitally, and it will push stuff out. It trialled a new social media account, which was... I think BBC election results or something like that as a tag, and you could tweet it, and it would automatically reply if that constituency had given out uh, given out results yet. But ultimately, it wasn't that widely used, from what I saw, because people could just put it in Google, and that would produce the same thing. But if you look at the way that the reporting was done, like Laura Kunzberg was wonderful, absolutely brilliant. The what fourteen hours she was working yesterday, yeah, and. She was pulling things straight out of Twitter. She was annoyed this morning when someone couldn't instantly put the, mon- uh, the monarchy tweet straight up on screen. What, I can see this on my phone. Why can't the viewers see this right now? And that's just the different way that the BBC reporters, like Laura, same as Evan Davis, in a different way. They use Twitter as a, a natural source straight away. And it's something that David, bless him, I've talked to him about Twitter a number of times and he, and he understands it but it's not something he instantly goes to as a primary source, whereas the new journalists do, and that was the big difference this time.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's probably fair because some of those more establishment names actually looked actively uncomfortable with their laptops open, I think. Andrew Marr, uh, you know, there was a reference at one point to him saying, oh, did you just pull that off Wikipedia? There's kind of awkward bit of banter with Andrew Marr <laughs> daring to use the internet rather than knowing something offhand. Is it just the case that in time, younger journalists who are more native with this stuff will come along and make it feel a bit more natural?
4: Yeah, I think that's just logical. Same as there, are, there are very few people who could get employed as a journalist coming out of city, for example, who couldn't shoot, edit, who couldn't periscope as I'm doing at the moment, who couldn't cut audio. Oh no, a are you periscoping us I now? I am periscoping you right this Hey there, periscope fans! Are How many people today. are watching? At the moment, four.
1: There we go. The digital future. We've <laughs> embraced it here on the Media Podcast, Liz. This was the first ever. Uh, election broadcast on the BBC away from TV centre since one thousand nine hundred and fifty nine did that notice on screen or not I don't
3: think so particularly it, it, um, but what I did notice and what i absolutely agree with Boyd on was there was something about the richness of the color and the it, it was it was visually more gripping ITV did look pale by comparison and sort of badly lit, which is a strange thing and, and channel four i didn 't like anyway but then I'm, who would no of my age group and um, Perhaps that's a bit unfair, but I didn't like it. Um, Sky also looked a bit bleached. And, and the BBC had this, this richness about it, which I thought was really impressive.
1: Channel Four, let's talk about that. Led by Jeremy Paxman and David Mitchell, although there were other people involved as well. Started strong, one point seven million viewers. The second time they've had an alternative night. What did you make of it, Boyd? It was a slightly um, uneasy mix at times,
2: wasn't it? That comedy and news it thing It was very uneasy. I admired the, the effort, and I like you know it's exactly what Channel Four should be doing. Um, but unlike, I mean, the more four drama was fantastic and worked really well, and was an absolutely perfect innovation for kind of political obsessives and the build-up to the election. But for me, it was downhill from then on. As soon as the Channel 4 main coverage started, who took the editorial decision to tell Jeremy Paxman to tell... Jokes off, read jokes off the auto queue for seemingly hours on end. At the start of that coverage, he's not—he has not got comic timing. It was awkward and embarrassing and difficult. If you've got everyone else on that show as a comedian, Mm. including David Mitchell, his co-presenter, let David Mitchell do the jokes. David
1: Mitchell was great, actually. David Mitchell was fine in that
2: role, absolutely fine. But there was still—even then there were still awkward moments because he kept having to interact with Jeremy. They kept having to try and banter off each other. It was just relentlessly awkward. By the time they dropped the scripted stuff, and by the after midnight when the results were coming in, and Paxson was more sitting there analysing the results with guests and interviewing you know, Louise Mensch and all this. Co- that was fine. That was oh, a lot I almost felt relaxed so, f- finally. You still had the Paxson audience there, home. which was the a bit weird. Work. It yeah. was a bit
1: like an Edinburgh Fringe show, yeah. wasn't it? There
2: was a terrible moment where they had Alex Salmond on. You know, this historic moment for the SNP. They had Alex Salmond on. He could not hear what the hell was going on because the audience kept laughing yeah. after every question and, c- and clapping and applauding. So that stage just didn't work. They didn't need the audience at all because even even when Jeremy Paxman was was not reading the jokes very well, the audience was laughing too much at these not particularly good jokes told. Badly by Jeremy Paxman. I just think I like the idea of it, but Mm -hmm. as as soon as the editorial decision was made to get Paxman to try and be funny, someone needed to intervene and go, no, let the comedians be funny.
3: Liz. Um, could I ask Boyd because he might yes. know? Um, was the, the laughter completely natural? I think it was. I think but it's just. But it sounded when you, so fake.
2: But I know what you mean. It did. Play it was in over in the kernel. top laughter to a live election well, show. Well, you know that what? Here's what happens. I've been at so many recordings of terrible sitcoms, but people, you gather people in that situation, they want to help, they want to laugh, they're mm. being told to laugh every five minutes. You know, off there as soon as it goes to ads by the warm-up person or whoever, by the host. They just do. They just kind of do what the broadcasters want them to do, i.e. laugh at the bad jokes.
3: That's exactly what I thought was happening. I didn't think obviously they were playing in canned laughter, but there was something so forced about it, and it was obviously some hysterical floor manager, you know, winding them up all the time. And it really, well, I couldn't have spoiled it any more for me than it was already spoiled, but I really didn't like that bit.
1: I think, I wonder if there would just be a little tiny tweak they could have made, because like you're all saying, yeah, it's a good Channel 4 distinctive yeah. idea. I wonder if they could have just had a sort of front of stage and behind 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 stage set. If Paxman had been sitting behind stage in a kind of green room environment and David Mitchell had been out the front doing the laughs, would that have made it a bit easier to watch? It
4: wasn't a distinct commission. You've, You've got this sort of weird kind of amalgamation of Paxman who is a heavyweight news broadcaster. And you're somehow trying to make it young and you're making it young by being patronising, by being glib and attempting to read out tweets saying Paxman's sexy. That's not the way that you attract a young audience. That's the way you alienate an entire generation of young voters by assuming that they want, oh, look, here's something funny. Oh, Jeremy Paxman made a joke about some... Uh, some woman he gave a job on Newsnight to in exchange for sex. Isn't that hilarious? You what you had then? So Richard Osman, the guy from Pointless, he was brilliant. You wanted those polls that were if you really like steak and kidney puddi- uh, pudding, you will. Those people will lead to a UKIP majority. I think it was. Mm. That was wonderful. That was data journalism done in a very funny and very clever and very beautifully thought out way and the difference was then you had Paxman in front of some pictures of some differing increasingly ridiculous people and you're expecting him to be funny and that was awful
3: it's interesting what you say about alienating young people because the people I were with were all over 50 and boy were they alienated by it. They didn't like it either. One other point they did a, a cutaway to a, um, a sort of off take of an MP being interviewed and, and not being able to remember Labour's policies or whatever mm. and I thought that was really wrong and and offensive because you know in the TV world all the time when people are being mic'd up or you're starting you ask them questions in their minds somewhere else and it's sort of the unwritten rules of the game that you don't go back to that and I thought that was mean spirited and nasty. I, I wonder also, if
2: Sorry, but I Just There's one to... other quick problem with the Channel Four coverage. Sorry, it's really, I mean, it's again, I can't emphasise that i really admired their effort. Yeah. But it just in what you also missed the news. You know, we were yes. kind of promised that they'd get you'd get the news and you'd also get the comedy and other stuff. But by having these long pre-recorded bits of Gogglebox et etc., it was a fine idea in principle. They actually missed moments, key moments where people were updating you on the exit poll responses, to the explanation of the exit poll, and they'd come back and, and almost they'd be reporting on what had been reported on the other channels. It just that that became a bit frustrating. So if you actually interested in the election, you'd definitely be turning over to the BBC, as clearly most people did.
3: Could I just make a point about that? Both on Sky and on ITV, they ran the exit poll figures at the bottom of the screen for a long, long time before they put the current uh, what was actually happening, and I found that really irritating because Yeah, you just was, didn't feel well
2: informed. And, it, and in fact, on ITV particularly, they ran they ran the updates of, of as the seats were coming in, the, of, of their projections, and it was as if they were fact, and yeah. it was not fact. Was and that was misleading. really confusing and misleading. OK, you moved us on to Skylist, so let's
1: talk about that. You're a lecturer at City University, so you knew about this incentive where they had students sent out with 4G phones to cover some of the slightly more obscure... Counts. What did you think about well, that?
3: first of all, interestingly, I didn't know because I suppose there's no reason necessarily why Sky would inform us, but this was an arrangement that Sky made through our, our office organisers. They came in and they trained a whole load of students, I think, well, over 100, to go out to, um, as you say, obscure constituencies. They weren't actually using their phones in the sense that, that viewers might... Sorry, your listeners might think that you mean. They were using them on a tripod. They were provided by Sky, but they were, in fact, iPhones. And the idea was to get all this interesting footage back. In fact, it wasn't very interesting, I didn't think. It was all terribly samey. And I'm not entirely sure of the wisdom of paying, you know, 100 kids, £150 each, which is what they got, to go to, say, Nottingham or, I don't know, Osmotherly and film. And also, it was slightly worrying because some of the students have ended up Paying out more than they got in because they bought hotels or they hired cars or they got the dad to lend them the car or whatever, you know. And I don't know that it was worth it. It was one a bit like Channel 4. It was a good idea, but did it actually work out in the end?
2: No, it didn't, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think I saw kind of a few early attempts to go to them um, at the beginning, and that I think they kind of seemed to give up after a while as if it was a bad job and it hadn't really worked, and Adam Bolton stayed there mostly interviewing the people you'd normally expect him to interview.
3: Can you imagine being the director with all those fees? Well, I mean...
2: on Sky Arts, we got to see I mean, We that did. Was, again, Let's talk about that. Uh, yes. That was phenomenal, wasn't it? It was brilliant. And
1: can I just say, <laughs> Martin Stanford and Mark Longhurst, both criminally underused on the main channel, incredible right. job.
2: I mean, Mark Longhurst was live narrating that, a director's gallery for five hours. That was, I, when, they st- when he started live narrating yeah. at the beginning of it, I thought he would can't possibly carry on at this rate. Although, <laughs> yeah. but he was he to was. the point where he was telling us that the guy, the, the guy who was in charge of typing up the stuff on the on the on the on the thing at the bottom of the screen, is particularly fondness for colourful bow ties and you know that bizarre, pointless, trivial insights. But I, I was absolutely gripped. But I thought that was the best innovation because it was an innovation that actually made sense. It was new, genuinely new, and it worked. You, you were it was providing something genuinely new, and people, you did want to keep flicking back to it just to check mm. what the hell was going on.
3: It's interesting. It was just interesting. Yeah, really interesting.
2: Well, also, like everything else about Sky Arts, which seems to
1: exist to say, look, BBC, we can do arty stuff as well, it's kind of like the sort of thing, really, BBC 3 or BBC 4 should have been doing, shouldn't it? They should have been showing us inside the BBC control room, but they'd never do that because they're the BBC.
4: No, there were plenty of people on the BBC periscoping, uh, so Mark Settle, That's for example, and Chris Hamilton. No, but... but <laughs> 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 Periscope is the future um, no, we and the way that Sky have been innovating in, in these sorts of fields has been way ahead of their competition in traditional news broadcasting so the way that they've been messing around with ideas which may work, may be a dreadful idea may have a bit of something in it that they, they can then refine has been actually quite refreshing for a traditional news channel to actually go, let's try this and then two people watch it then they try it one more time and then one person watches it then they stop doing it that's refreshing and it's a nice new way of doing things
3: and it's nicely understated there wasn't a great brouhaha about that like say the Channel 4 alternative with Mm. posters everywhere can I just say something about posters Mm. there's been very very few posters you know billboards in the streets for this election and everyone I know is saying that's because all the budgets have gone into social media I don't know if you'd agree with that
4: I think in London that was true so I I think started tweeting about the fact I hadn't really seen any things and then I left for one of the constituencies in Yorkshire I went around a few constituencies in Yorkshire and they were everywhere on every road there were billboards there were posters there were those like things you put in the garden of just all down the road of Labour crashing them through They're next to Conservative next to Lib Dem next to all of them And so I think it's just the London where it's not been as pronounced as perhaps it could be.
1: Okay, well, we'll take more of a look at the online uh, side of this election after this break. We'll also look at radio as well and print. They're still involved, aren't they? Who knew? Uh, (laughs) That's after this.
4: Hi, I'm Tim, a voiceover artist, bringing you today's sponsors. This episode of The Media Podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace's all-in-one hosting and design service allows you to create one-off sites for your new series, campaign or online store in minutes. And with Squarespace 7, you have access to Getty Images professional photography, so you'll never have to spend so long looking for the right shot. Plans start at $8 a month and include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. For a free trial with no credit card required, head to squarespace.com now and you can get 10% off a monthly or annual plan by using the code MEDIAPOD at the checkout. If you like what you've heard, you can contact me, Tim Gifford, through the Media Podcast.
1: Right, let's take the opportunity to talk about the online side of this election then. It was meant to be the Twitter election, this, wasn't it, Alex? We all said that last time and it wasn't. Was it this time? I don't think
4: it was, was it? It just wasn't the influence that okay. social media was meant to have. Like, So I was talking to campaigners last night um, while they were getting increasingly drunk and so being increasingly more honest. And they're, <laughs> they're all saying that it's been a lot more traditional crashing through, like making those phone calls that throughout the afternoon. It was the amount of money. So the conservative uh, Conservatives are said to have overspent Labour Party significantly during the election campaign and a lot of people have started commenting about the power of the traditional media so you know the Sun what won it and the Sun have been campaigning hard on this as the Telegraph, the Telegraph sent an open letter as as quickly as they could if you think of the digital election the thing that instantly stands out and it it was in Miliband's concession speech when he was resigning was the fact that he got photoshopped a bit and that it was part of a meme it wasn't that oh he had this really expensive campaign to put together and it worked really well it was that he had a buff body in a few photos, and a seventeen-year-old girl got doorstepped by the Daily Mail. Like that's that's not the social media election.
1: Except I did see some of the Labour campaign videos. Turn- this might be who I follow rather than you know who had more money. But I did see some of the Labour campaign videos turn up on my Facebook wall. I saw Steve Coogan. I saw Martin Freeman when that happened. There was a little bit more of that going on.
4: Is that because of what they were saying, or was that because of who they were? because they were famous, wasn't I, it? And that's that's the key thing because if you're doing this level up so the idea of the social thing is it's ground up so you get these people who are saying fascinating things and all you need is to light that spark and that's what creates viral content so that's what created mil- um millie fandom that was just a thing which caught the imagination it wasn't because a celebrity was doing it; it's because it was funny and it just hit an emotional nerve and so if you're going to do it properly if you're going to seed content you do not Not do it with Coogan, you don't do it uh, with Martin Freeman, just put it low down, so um, Kimmel in the US, beautiful, he just made that video of the woman falling over and setting fire to something, he just put that on YouTube, two months later it had X million views. That's how you seed content online and make it for a social experiment and a social social gold dust. You don't do it by saying, "Here's a celebrity. Look at the celebrity. Isn't this fantastic?" Well,
1: you've sort of moved us on seamlessly to Russell Brand. I can't help feeling. Boy, do, do you think, in retrospect, it probably didn't make much difference to the result. But was it a good idea or a bad idea for Ed Miliband to go and be interviewed
2: by Russell Brand? I it had absolutely no effect whatsoever. I, mean, I, I saw, I think it was Dan Wooten from um, the Sun saying he must have lost loads and loads of votes. For nonsense. I mean, I just don't think anyone cares. I th- you know, I think you know. The- the, the effect that celebrities have on um, the election is about the same as the, the effect that um, social media has on the election, absolutely none I think this election was a complete triumph for old media not only in the build up, in the campaign it was all about you know the key moments we're watching the, the most exciting part of the whole campaign in the build up was that question time special night when Ed Miliband was torn off, torn a strip off by right wing lunatics in the audience as far as I was concerned having a go at him for ruining the economy misguidedly in my opinion. That was the most revealing po- point of the whole campaign as far as I'm concerned on television and I think that encompasses why Labour also lost the election, by the way. And then, on the actual night, last night, who cares what was happening on Twitter? I mean, it was all about watching it on television. I think you I don't. Care. Just, don't, don't you don't you care. care what was on Twitter. You're deluding th- yourself, because in the end, no, in the real world, this was old people are the ones that came out and voted, young people didn't, in comparison. Well, they Russell had told them not to, in fairness. But <laughs> yeah, well, then he I'm not even blaming him for that. I just don't think he had any effect whatsoever. I think the problem is you can have as much social media as you want, attract young people, you, you can see as many videos as you want subtly. At the moment, the reality of the situation is young people, and this is my own generalisation, but I genuinely feel this, don't feel that, that politics is cool. Uh, they just don't. Old pe- once you get to the age of about twenty-five, thirty, then you're in- you're engaged, and I- you're going to start, in- and nothing you can do about it. And every single thing that happened in this election is emphasis that do not write off old media, do not write off watching BBC One on election night as seven million people did,
3: and they probably would in five years' time again.
2: Do you
4: want to interrupt first, or shall I? <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's very tempting. after have to go first. Age before beauty, as they say. Um, I think it's really important to note that this was the election, the television election. The debates were what people watched and what they talked about. Seven million people watching debates. I mean, unbelievable. Uh, lots and lots of people on the night watching all across all media. It must have been, what, ten million, I suppose. It's It's been a big telly debate, a big telly election. And telly is not dead. And what I think is really interesting about social media, and I work with a lot of students who are completely addicted to it, and I'm really interested in it, Myself, but it's terribly personal, and it's terribly about you and your mates. Whereas television is about broadcasting to a lot of different people at the same time, and you don't get that with social media. You can do have something trending on Twitter, which can reach twenty-five thousand people and go absolutely nowhere in reality because it's only twenty-five thousand people.
4: I think just, my first point is I could not disagree with more about the idea that young people are disengaged with politics. I've been well, in vote. I've been in yeah. Westminster with kids that I've worked with and. Putting together a press plan, they pitched that to Parliament and they affected change about poverty. They've been on London Live discussing these things. These kids are brilliant if you give them a voice. And it's but that's not, not representative it's, selection, it's, is
2: it? It, it, it? They're self self-selecting. No, sample, they were not. They were ta- they were
4: taken out of dis- they were taken from disadvantaged communities and helped. And that was a difference. We listened. If once you give young people a voice, and that's the difference. It's not that young people are disengaged with politics. They hate not being heard because no one listens to them. And so if they continue not being listened to, then why would they take an interest in traditional politics? When only outside traditional politics are they ever do they ever have a voice. That was the power of social media, because they can have a voice. It doesn't affect mainstream politics, because mainstream politics does not want to engage with them.
1: And let's talk about the events that were actually staged for all those old people who were voting as well. They were quite controlled, weren't they? I mean, when you, Boyd, when you were hinting at Ed Miliband having, uh, you know, strips torn out of him, mm. you could say the same in fairness about Cameron and Clegg in that BBC event. They all did, the strips torn off Miliband were much... Hurt you. Hurt, but <laughs> but, <laughs> well, they hurt him, they hurt Labour. <laughs> but it, and they hurt me, yeah. but it, But it felt like that was uh, the politicians, the leaders, media the voters for the first time because everything else is so stage-managed. Is that going to change at the next election? Because one thing that social media has done is make us all more savvy about just how stage-managed these events are.
2: No, because I think they're going to be even more scared about... You know, that, that moment is going to chill Labour to its heart. The fact that that faced by a terrifying audience of real people who do not believe a word Labour says on the economy. That, you know, they can, how, they, how do they deal with that? I mean, they're not going to deal with it by going, yeah, hey, we need to meet more of these normal people who are going to terrify us throughout the next campaign in five years' time. I, think, I don't think there's any answer to it. I just, Okay, one last thing on the digital election is just how well BuzzFeed
4: did overnight. And BuzzFeed this morning was a wonderful front page. They were first on the Mirror's change of uh, front page this morning. They were first on the headlines, which now make absolutely no sense. Now you've had the exit polls, now you've had the results. So we're first on all manner of different things. And I think that resonated with a an engaged audience, just not one that would stay up all night listening to cabaret and watching elections in the background. But, you know, you have that Just passing interest, political interest, of which all of those stories hit a perfect pitch for an audience.
1: Okay, well, let's talk about print briefly then. They're still carrying on as if nothing's changed, right? They're still supporting the part, most of them overwhelmingly supporting Cameron and the Conservatives, Uh, but they're still coming out in favour of a party, they're still campaigning, they're still running headlines. The Sun doing the weird thing of supporting the SNP in Scotland and and the Conservatives in England. What do you make of all of the papers and how they've responded this time around?
4: I forget the commentator who it was, but they were saying that the press has become more partisan this election than it has done before. And so if you... Like the Independent taking a view... like The the whole point of the Independent taking a view on a party seems ridiculous because it kind of goes against the entire name. And you saw, what was it, five to one uh, front-page headlines uh, supporting... Conservatives over Labour based on the press, but it does seem to have worked to a certain extent. It was the Sun what won it to a, to a lesser degree than it was in when those headlines were initially written. But they matter depressingly
2: a lot more than they thought they would do. Do, do you think they matter, Boyd? Uh, I do, yeah. I think I don't think it's anywhere near the Sun what won it or anything like that, but I think the relentless kind of vast majority of the media buying into, and I hate to use the word, the narrative, Mm. but they all did. They all bought into the same narrative. And it's it's almost like it's on a bigger scale, I think, than simply The Sun and The Telegraph and The Mail and the vast majority of the written press backing the Tories in, in quite the most ludicrous, embarrassing way. Just, you know, kind of not even pretending that they're covering this in any kind of news style, but just... You know, the picture of, of Ed Miliband eating that sandwich, I mean, that that for me was awful and humiliating and It was a bit of an idea, wasn't it? Right? Yeah, it was an In idea. In front pages of But I think on an on a, on a, on a almost more impactful scale, I just think the whole of the media, pretty much, and I, I'm not one of those people who think there's any kind of experience, I just think they have done it, buys into this whole narrative of, you know... Of the economy, of cuts, you know, work, the whole kind of broad scope that the only way to deal with the economy is to carry on kind of dealing with the deficit and the debt and having cuts. That's we've Everyone's bought into that, you know, almost for the last kind of five, ten years. The whole media has. And it's like, and you watch Russ and, and the one thing I think that is interesting about the Russell Brand thing is at least he's sitting there saying something different to that story. And that's why the Sun gets so furious with him, because he is actually, to be fair to him, challenging that thing. The problem is, is people aren't voting on, on the other side of that. They're not, they're not taking what he's saying and voting on it. They're just kind of like going, oh, yeah, there's nothing we can do about the, it. The other
1: thing, though, that the media does accept almost without question are the polls. Uh, is that going to change now, Liz? Because, you know, apart from the exit poll, which turned out to be very close to right, every single poll was basically wrong before that, which said there's going to be a hung parliament, they were going to be neck and neck. No one predicted more seats for the Tories. No one predicted Labour would lose that many. So will we still be basing our discussions around polling that turns out very easily to be wrong?
3: Of course we will because what else is there? I mean that was what was so funny about the coverage last night. For 2 hours they did nothing but talk about exit polls which turned out to be wrong which was really amusing. I've got a theory that they should start the election programmes at midnight when there's something to talk about. Give us something entertaining before that and we'll all sit down at midnight and watch what's really going on rather than talking about an exit poll. I would like to say that uh, interestingly talking about the press and how partisan it is that I have an Irish colleague who is working in the UK for the first time and The other day he was saying he has never seen anything as vitriolic and as partisan as the UK press. And that's been echoed by the American guy who worked for Obama who's over here who said exactly the same thing. I think we've got an extremely verbal, if that's the right word, vociferous, vitriolic press in this country on lots of things. And they don't stop when it comes to politics. And yet
1: with radio, and let's just touch on radio because it's the final media we haven't really discussed yet. Uh, we are constrained. We can't say what they say in the press. We can't take a view even on stations like LBC where I work, where the rest of the time we do and that's our USP. Is that right? Of
3: course that's right. That's the glory of broadcasting. You get a licence and because of that you're covered by the Communications Act, I think 2003, which says that you've got to be balanced. But why? Why
1: the disparity between the press and radio? It's because
3: radio is provided for for the whole nation at once free and therefore because it's licensed by, in effect the government, it's supposed to be balanced so that you can't say that a ubiquitous supply is is going to go one way or the other. The point about the press is that they're owned and they're privately funded and they in effect do what they like. If we, but LBC, if LBC is we owned started, and privately
1: funded as well.
3: No, but it has a license in order to broadcast. Yeah. The, the newspapers don't But the have only distinction license. that you're
1: making really is that it's free, or well, the evening standard's free.
3: No, the distinction is that it, it's it's governed by the Broadcasting Act because it's seen as a ubiquitous supply. It's something called the universality of provision, which is quite a boring concept. But it means that if, by law, it's provided to everyone in the country free, it cannot be politically biased, and that goes for all news stories and why they have to be balanced. But
4: then that covers the internet. And I, ah, I,
3: that's a really interesting question, because the internet isn't in effect licensed in the same way, but but it, it could well go that way, and that's the the modern con- conversation.
4: I think the scary thing is the closer we get to this accepting that the US model of news is somehow acceptable and a great thing to be, which I personally don't agree with. I like the fact that there is no obvious part of it. You know, you, you know what you're getting with Andrew Neil and Andrew Marr. You know, there's no question of which side of the fence they're on, but while they're broadcasting for the BBC... They have a very t- service very back. tight line to toe, and that is a good thing in my view. But I, I agree, but they're, they're, I don't see
2: why commercial radio has to be constrained by the same thing that you'd put on BBC One, that's all. I know what you mean. I think intri- I think it's good that it is constrained, I have to say. I don't really want either, um, you know, shock jocks. I don't want John Gaunt, you know, being signed up by LBC to, to rant about you know, immigration five days a week. It's almost like for me, I mean, I don't even know, you know, the names of the rules as to why they obviously can't do that, but I'm glad it can't. I just feel it feels intrinsically wrong. It feels, you know, it, that there is a difference between print media. Um, and broadcasting, including radio. Um, I have to say, I mean, I thought LBC... I think LBC does a good, very good job and did a very good job. Uh, I think Five Live was also, and Radio 4, they kind of did a, did a joint broadcast last night, which was brilliant. So when I finally went to bed, I still was listening to the radio. I think you watch BBC and you watch, you listen to LBC and you watch and you listen to Radio 5 Live, and it makes the print media seem even more embarrassing. That's my bottom line, you know. I'm still not sure if it has that huge profound effect in the end, though.
1: Do you think it's right for Radio 4 to go back to their normal programming today, after today and before the world at one, you know, they had their drama or whatever they did? Yeah, I mean, it seemed to me a bit odd, yeah. I felt like my instinct should have been rolling news for Radio 4. Well, you've got five live, though. You have got five live as well, yeah. yeah.
4: As with all major events, there is a massive BBC, incredibly well thought out, incredibly Incredibly, like signed off by everybody at every level about what they do. So there's a certain protocol that I can't talk about. If the Queen dies, for example, there there is a very specific protocol that's not for public consumption. But um, I've talked about it on answer me this. If you're interested, (laughs) what
2: what happens if you do talk about
4: it? I I assume you get killed. Oh, okay. Yeah, but then you know, so there there will have been this audience research, and there will have been that decision bed. if you want to, if you care about the election that much at 9am and you want to follow the last gasp everyone knew what happened by 9am it's only the politicos that really want to follow it after 9am so I think it's it's kind of fair enough I, admittedly we,
2: have, we had three resignations after 9am yeah, didn't did. we yeah, yeah. so they missed that on Radio 4. and Farage's declaration yeah. as well where he yeah, left. I think it was a mistake I say
3: I don't agree. I think that life goes on. Lots of people want to hear, you know, Woman's Hour, or which is quite political on occasions, but or The Archers, or whatever. I mean, just because we're mad keen on it doesn't mean everybody else is, and they'll know what they do, they're doing. They know what the ratings say. Like
4: on the bus here, I was sort of—I had my iPhone on, what listening to Cameron give his acceptance speech. No one else. There was one person listening to music, but no one else even had headphones on. Everyone was looking at bits of paper. I, I'm not sure what that says about me, or what says that, that says about other people.
3: I was on the train coming here and the whole train was completely obsessed listening to a man talking at the top of his voice about getting a fitted wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's probably Nick Clegg, isn't it, sorting out his next month? I think people are shell-shocked by the whole thing. That's yes. the, I mean, in, you know, in the office, you know, Everyone was just kind of like looking just absolutely stunned and shocked. I, think, I do think that, you know, this, the particular story of this election... Is you know people are just kind of reeling from it. I think okay, that-
1: we've we've talked about the media covering the result. Let's just briefly, as you were segueing us into there, talk about the actual result and its impact on the media. Mm. Um, what is this going to mean for the BBC? Is the obvious thing the Tories have been talking about cutting, haven't they, or hinting yeah. that it costs too much? Oh That's bad, isn't it for the oh BBC? My God. The
2: BBC must be. Are we, to, are we allowed to swear? You can. The BBC must be shitting themselves. <laughs> I mean, seriously. I just think, and I re- and I have faith in Lord Hall. He seems to be a you know a strong-willed figure at the top. I just hope. The BBC is firm and doesn't feel they have to kowtow to this government. Because not only have you got the prospect of a more right-wing government that doesn't have the influence of, of the Liberal of the Liberal Democrats, you've also got a right-wing media that's already... Today, Daily Mail was already slagging off the BBC's coverage last night, kind of calling it awful and terrible inubilation, which is patent nonsense, and saying this guy's used better. That is going to be relentless. The right-wing media, with all its vested interests relentlessly attacking the BBC, backed by right-wingers in the... T- oh, my God, it's an appalling prospect. And the BBC has to remain strong and not, and not give up and not give in to those, to, those, to those forces. I think
4: the scary thing is that, is that are the things that will go first. So you're seeing BBC Three, whatever... Y- you can argue for hours and hours about whether that's a wind-down order just said in a different way or whether that's a real innovation. I think that's for a, a whole separate discussion. But if you tried to cut Radio 3 or Radio 4 at all, despite the fact that Radio 3 per user, I think, is incredibly expensive, there would be outrage because the sort of people that are criticising the BBC are the sort of people that feel like they should be listening to Radio 3. They don't, because very few people do. And so, in the same way that Six Music was saved, because, in my mind, that was an empty threat to close it, because they hoped what what would happen did happen. So then you ha- you've increased the user base of Six Music and there is no slack in BBC News at all. Well except Sajid Javid assuming this is still
1: his brief isn't suggesting that we should actually cut services is he? What he's saying is there is slack, there is waste there is mismanagement, there is bureaucracy that's what the Tories will try and cut and actually a lot of people in the BBC have sympathy for that idea if it's true Liz, it's just as Alex says, is it true?
3: Well I think it's really interesting and I take a very different view from Boyd and from Alex and probably a more unconventional view given you know the the sort of people who listen to the the podcast and media aficionados I actually think £4 billion of money is collected in through the licence fee. That money does not belong to the BBC. That is money that is is paid for people to have the right to receive a live television signal. That money can be redistributed by the government or whoever as they see fit. The BBC does not have a right to it all. There are other things that could be done. I personally think, for example, there should be a a public... service broadcasting budget that funds other people as an alternative to the BBC. Because to have one monolithic organisation telling us all how to think is not how I want to be. I want to see ITV really strong again. I want to see a duopoly. I want to see local television. One of the things about this election, which is quite interesting, is that presumably now the local television digital terrestrial licences will go on being advertised. That was Jeremy Hunt taking some of that licence fee money and redistributing it. So I am in effect a a fan of top slicing, which probably means I'll get top slice myself, because to say anything anti-BBC everyone acts as if you're a complete monster but I do think we've got to look at this more objectively and not just go along the line of the BBC, it has the money and does what it likes and tells us all what to think I
4: think the difficulty there is the closer you get to making BBC lose its funding, it moves more commercial and then what you have is you have Top Gear and the massive hoo-ha about the amount of money that raises you have have Doctor Who and it's incredibly high production because it sells, Doctor Who would not, not be have that high production if it couldn't sell as well overseas
1: okay i think we've kind of covered the election but but there is still time for the election special media quiz uh it's a quick fire just buzz in with your names when you know the answer the winner gets a hat made of marzipan question number one how did channel 4 news's paul mason entertain twitter followers during polling day Buzzing. Do do with music? Buzzing with your name, Liz. Oh, Liz. Yeah, go on. something
3: to do, do with music? Oh, I know this now. I've lost it. That's
1: now. as close as we're going to get, yes. He tweeted Northern a countdown. Yeah, Northern very good. Soul. Yes, he did. Yes, she wasn't even looking at notes or anything. He tweeted a countdown of 100 Northern Soul tracks. Uh, question number two Who said the national press was, quote, more partisan than Fox News? Boyd. Boyd. David Axelrod. He did, yes. Who came from Obama's campaign team to work for Labour. I uh, mentioned that earlier. Question number three. According to the Twitter account Lib Dem Deposits, how much money have the Lib Dems lost in the 2015 election?
3: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> You've got a buzzing
1: with your name. Alex, you get first 57, go. Grand. That is exactly oh. right, 157,000. Well done. Wow, this is a three-horse That's race, uh, unlike, as it turned that. out, the election. Question number four. Three front-page headlines. You tell me which paper had this headline this morning. Swinging the Blues, Blue Dini, and the Blues.
4: Alex. Sun.
1: Son. Correct. The Sun released five different early editions over the course of the night, according to Press Gazettes. That means, Alex, you got two right. The others got one each. Alex, you are the winner of the uh, Media Quiz mm, election special.
2: On. And a hat. Yes.
1: Congratulations, <laughs> yeah. Boyd, would you like to do a dignified uh, resignation speech? <laughs> yeah, can I
2: just say, I-, I never intend to use Periscope as long as I live. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but before we go, we are going to briefly touch on some other stuff that's been happening this week, because it's not just election world in Media Land. The Top Gear 3 are in
2: talks with ITV about a new show, according to the Media Guardian. Avoid good move. Uh, yeah, oh, but this is interesting. Yeah, because I tweet when when they first when the whole thing happened and the whole um, Clarkson thing happened. I said, well, what well, they just go to ITV, it'd be fine. And some person, I wish I could remember who it was, tweeted me very emphatically saying, Top Gear could not possibly move to ITV because they criticised the cars yeah. too uh, too much and the, the commercial demands. I was like, they, no, there's definitely a way in which those three presenters can have a show in which they talk about cars and other stuff. So I think it will happen. Yeah, it makes sense to me.
3: I don't know, and I don't care. <laughs>
2: All right. Uh, story number two.
1: Trouble at Al Jazeera, America, the U.S. news network, where the CEO who launched the channel has been replaced. Ahab al-Shahibi has gone just a day after the New York Times spoke of turmoil In the newsroom. Liz, do you know what's going on there? Yeah, it's
3: really interesting. Al Jazeera is a really interesting um, product, if you like. Um, It comes out of Qatar. It's funded pretty well by the Qataris. Um, It reminds me in some ways of Sky News when I went there as managing editor way back at the beginning, in that it it can try things out. It's got this exciting feel to it. But at the same time, you can have a hothouse atmosphere. And that's absolutely true, I think, of Al Jazeera, not particularly here in London, but in Doha and in America, where it's had a pretty rough ride getting established at all. So it's a place of high passions and underneath all of this I think there's a suggestion that perhaps there was some anti-feminism anti-semitism lurking and they've been very very quick that the new um, CEO Al Anstey has been very quick to say that's not the case but it is a hothouse atmosphere at Al Jazeera. Uh, And finally we
1: did the whole podcast at this speed, usually we'd be three minutes long, wouldn't we? Uh, the other story of the week, Five Live's sister station, Five Live Sports Extra, has been the subject of much discussion this week. The BBC submitting proposals to the Trust over extending programming on the station to include ten more hours of new content, including magazine shows. Uh, boy, Jonathan Wall, the controller of Five Live, he's been keen to stress these are proposals. They're not done deals. Yeah. But they're clearly keen to expand their sports coverage I think because TalkSport are launching a sister station on
2: digital. Do you, do you think that's the reason? Yeah, you'd think so, yeah. I mean, I, I don't get, I have to say. I, can, I mean, there is a lot of, there's sometimes a lot of live events that clash, and that to me is why... Five Live Sports Extra exists. I mean, I'm a huge Five Live fan. I listen to it constantly. It's my station of choice. And sometimes there's, there's, two, there's two or three events even going on. You think, oh, yeah, they've got this other channel, and that works very well. But to have, it, to have more space for debate or discussion about sports when, effectively, you've got that night in, night out, mm. which I love, um, and it's much more, by the way, intelligent level of debate about sport than you go on Talk Sport, for example. Um, but I don't get why they particularly should be given more space and time to talk about sport.
1: Unless it, it means more news on 5 Live, which actually could be a good thing sometimes, couldn't it, Alex? You want to tune in for a debate it, about politics and if the If it
4: works, side? it could be brilliant. So in the same way as trial and error, if you're trialling a netball discussion for 15 minutes and you're growing the audience so the, the term that you use in digital is many, the, many a niche makes the mainstream, so the idea that if you attract 10 or 15,000 viewers to each different show, then you have a larger audience. And so if you get these communities which are generally really close-knit, really tight really easily optimised and really easily accessible because they're already in communities. If you target those well enough, you get a small but very well-curated audience for each different show and each different minority sport and you have increased belief in the BBC's wider coverage of sport.
3: And I think this touches on the issue of women's sport and it is interesting that they say they're going to do more hockey and netball and things like that, so it's probably got quite an interesting political with a small p uh, consequence of, of this.
1: Right, that really is it. Unlike the election coverage, which will go on in some form for the next three weeks, that is it from us. My thanks to Boyd Hilton, to Alex Hudson and to Liz Howell. Uh, You can find all of our previous episodes and get new ones downloaded automatically straight to your phone if you head to themediapodcast.com. Uh, Today's show is dedicated... Actually, before we do this, we're coming to the end of our original Kickstarter dedications. But we've met loads of listeners out there in the real world who actually really enjoy this part, finding out who's uh, listening to the show and giving us money. So we're going to carry it on. Uh, If you would like to support the podcast and get a, a mention from Ollie Mann on the show, I mean, what could be more exciting... Uh, then go to themediapodcast.com and give us your cash. Uh, But anyway, today's show is dedicated to Carol Davenport, who is an ex-physics teacher, now working to highlight science as a springboard to interesting things, uh, and to documentary maker Brian Woods of True Vision TV. Uh, Thank you both very much, guys, for your support. Uh, I've been Ollie Mann. The producer is Matt Hill. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. And next time, I promise, no politics. Only from Rustolium. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end
0: essentials at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style.
4: Without the elevated price tag with Quince.